0: Talking Feds is sponsored by our friends at Total Wine and More, rewarding curious connoisseurs with a wondrous selection of wine, spirits, and beers.
1: Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Lintman. President Biden left For Rome in the G20 summit this week, keenly wanting the tailwind of an enacted spending bill that would demonstrate to world leaders that the U.S. is solving problems that beset many of them, climate change in particular. Instead, he went empty-handed and needing to confront a series of vexing foreign policy challenges, combined with his paramount objective of sealing the deal on the domestic spending bills at home, give Biden the look of a juggler riding a unicycle in front of a world audience. The challenges begin, as is now a constant on the international stage, with China. Tensions with Beijing have risen markedly over the perennial issue of Taiwan, and China recently tested hypersonic missiles in what the chair of the U.S. Chiefs of Staff characterized as very close to a Sputnik moment. Then, of course, there's Russia that has nowhere near China's economic might, but makes up for it with a bottomless appetite for destabilizing mischief, particularly directed west toward Europe and the U.S., And Biden has a lot of work with our erstwhile best friends in Europe because the United States' ambition to return to center stage as the emblem of capitalist democracy turns in large part on the attitudes of our NATO allies who perceived Trump's tenure as a kick in the teeth. Finally... With the release of the newest report from the U.N. and the imminent climate change conference, Biden and the U.S. also have to engage with the lackluster progress of the G20 nations who are not coming close to the pledges they all made in 2015. Here again, Biden sorely needs the whole card of the domestic spending bills that, even as trimmed, would devote about $550 billion to climate programs. And to help us piece together the most dangerous developments in a world of expanding autocratic politics, increasingly sophisticated cyber warfare, and incomplete COVID containment, we have a phenomenal group of national and international experts, distinguished professors all. And they are Professor Francis Fukuyama, He is a political economist and the director of the Ford Dorsey Masters in International Policy at Stanford, as well as a senior fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute for Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law. He's an author of a very long list of books and articles, including the seismic 1992 book, The End of History and the Last Man. Professor Fukuyama, thanks very much for joining.
2: Thanks for having
1: me. Professor Juliet Kayyem, a National Security Analyst at CNN and the Senior Belfer Lecturer in International Security at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, where she is Faculty Chair of the Homeland Security and Security and Global Health Projects. She was President Obama's Assistant Secretary for Intergovernmental Affairs at the Department of Homeland Security, also the author and editor of a long list of books and articles. And I could recapitulate, but I think instead I'll fast forward. So Professor Kayam, you have soon to come out, The Devil Never Sleeps, Managing Disasters in an Age of Catastrophes, yes? Why didn't you call it managing catastrophes in an age of disasters? That's what I want to know. This
3: is all supply chain <laughs> pending because I just got word that paper may now be impacted. So, oh my. Yeah. When's it hopefully coming out? March 29th. We got plenty of time. Yeah.
1: All right. But available for pre order now.
3: Thank you for the plug. Exactly. Hey,
1: and as long as I'm plugging the hardest working professor at the Kennedy School anyway, you've got another one on 9 11 right on its heels. Yeah. Yes. All right. And finally, Professor Michael McFall for the first time on Talking Feds, he, as most everyone knows, served as the U.S. ambassador to Russia from 2012 to 2014, and he is currently the Ken Olivier and Angela Nomolini Professor in International Studies in the Department of Political Science, also at Stanford University, and also a director of the Freeman Spogli Institute as well as a contributing columnist at the Washington Post. Before his ambassadorship, he worked for the U.S. National Security Council as the special assistant to the president and senior director of Russian and Eurasian affairs. Professor McFall, thank you very much for joining us for the first time on Talking Feds. Sure. Glad to be here. Okay, I think that's all the time we have (laughs) (laughs) after those long introductions. Okay, so let's start where for the last few years, most foreign policy national security discussions begin, China, where our relationship seems to be coming not just increasingly cold, but martial. Let's start here. General Mark Milley, who's come to prominence for a number of reasons of late, including his role in the January 6th difficulties, but the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said that China's testing of a hypersonic missile, which they did very recently, was, quote, very close to a Sputnik moment, which is kind of a heart-stopping characterization. So let me start by serving up for anyone. Do you agree with that characterization by Millie?
2: I hesitating because i'm not the military expert here it does seem to me a great exaggeration the reason that you want a hypersonic missile is basically to avoid anti-ballistic missile defenses but you know a lot of people argue that our attempt to put up an abm system beginning with reagan's star wars was a big mistake because that in itself was going to weaken deterrence. And so in a sense, a hypersonic missile is simply a way of restoring the stability of deterrence. And so by itself, I just think that the reaction to it was way overdrawn. I think there are many other things that China has done that should make us much more worried, like all of the exercises and military flights into the Taiwanese air defense zone. I think those are the things that we need to take seriously.
1: And we will get into those, but let me just make the point that it does seem as if we have no real answer. Now, it could be just a restoration of a kind of stasis, but it it is the case, as I understand it, that if there are two of these missiles kind of zigging and zagging, whatever sort of Star Wars capabilities we have can't get the job done. So why isn't that Uh, especially harrowing.
3: I agree with the great professor that because the motivation is not there. This is the Defense Department having very limited prism of where to put different countries. So we always go back to the Cold War, which is just like a a, a very silly, I think, or or just uh, not helpful analogy by the Joint Chiefs. And in terms of of a future in which you know, they're our greatest frenemy in many ways. We have co- we have compatibilities and common interests and incompatibilities and uncommon interests. And I think until we're going back to Taiwan, you know, until the president and they're walking it back, was probably a little bit too specific about what, what our strategy should be. You know, there is a benefit to being somewhat ambiguous about how we perceive China, because it doesn't fit into the Russian model, and we should stop trying to do that, given the way the world is now.
1: Let me jump to you, Professor McFall, because you've written a fair bit about this very point, that there are certain aspects of the Cold War that click, and certain that really don't, and we're fighting the old Cold War as it is, especially to the extent anyone would be pondering the kind of triangulation that Nixon did successfully with China and Russia. You see that as that would be a colossal blunder, yes?
0: Well, that small piece, yes, because the conditions that allowed Nixon to go to China do not exist today with respect to Moscow. Uh, The Sino-Soviet split took place long before that trip Or before Henry Kissinger went there. But but I want to go back to this bigger point about arms control and weapons that you you started with. You know, my view about the Cold War as an analogy is that it distorts more than it illuminates, but some things are worth remembering. And I think Americans especially should remember, yes, allegedly we won the Cold War, but during that 40 years, we made a lot of mistakes. In the way we fought the Cold War, millions of people around the world died. It was not cold, maybe cold in Europe, but it wasn't cold around the rest of the world. And with respect to weapons, remember, we wasted trillions of dollars. I don't have the numbers in front of me right now, Harry, but we wasted a ton of money spending on weapons that then we later... Demobilized, right? We went from 50,000 and now in the new start levels we're down to 1,550. I helped negotiate that treaty. Well, what a waste that was. And so when we think about US China relations, let's try to avoid what I would call some of the mistakes of the Cold War, including an arms race that didn't make the Soviet Union or the United States any more secure and was not necessary you can keep mutual assured destruction at a much lower level than we did during the cold war and the other thing i would say in this china debate i know the cold war better than i know china i'm not an expert But I'm always surprised at how shocked, (laughs) shocked, shocked people are that, oh, my goodness, the Chinese are responding to weapons we have. You know, to Frank's point, like we're building (laughs) missile defenses. They're probably not as effective as people think. We had this debate with the Russians during the New Star Treaty. Well, of course, other countries that are rivals to us are going to invest in responses to that including the Russian government that tragically has modernized all kinds of very threatening weapons sometimes i think there's a notion that we can do these things in the world and we just want everybody to admire what we do of course other countries that have the capacity are going to respond
1: so can we follow up please professor khayem on the enemy part of frenemy because <laughs> i think both of you are are saying you know we don't have the same kind of motivation, world domination, all the dynamic that we at least thought was driving the Cold War. There is something we do have, a genuine battle over, and that's Taiwan. Yes. And they do care deeply. And Biden has said, we're committed to defend, but the president of China has said, we will never back down. So I, I think it's discreet, but very intractable. So what's the play there?
3: Going back to the ambiguity actually benefits both parties. There's just no incentive at this stage to bring this to a hot war. You can't even imagine it in your head that would come to it. Obviously, mistakes make people nervous, right? The the possibility that there would be mistake. I think. We don't need to lose our heads about this. And my biggest worry is when the Pentagon makes such assertions, if you think you're in a Cold War, then you're in a Cold War, right? And so you just sort of everyone keeping their cool at this stage. I mean, just stepping back from what's happening with China and I think bringing it back to the homeland security side and the world we live in now and the economic reports coming out of the United States now and the not great ones coming out of China. There's many ways that we exert our strength. So one is, okay, we will protect Taiwan or military strength or whatever. But the other is, of course, our economic, social capabilities, our resiliency, to use an unhelpful word in many ways. The idea that we don't need to look inward as a sign of our strength is ridiculous at this stage. We had always believed for many, many years that a semi-free market with freedoms was the best model in terms of economic viability, and that that was our strength and as our homeland, right? And it was a model for the rest of the world. Well, here comes China with exceptional economic strength and not giving the kind of freedoms. And that's not such a bad model either, it turns out. And we're going to have to figure out whether our model actually works better or if we're dysfunctional. So bringing it back to everything from our capacity to get out of COVID effectively. There's no other priority right now than COVID, COVID, COVID. If we don't get out of this, our economic and social stability is, is really at risk. Let me
1: follow up with Professor uh, Fukuyama. I know you've probably feel like you discussed the end of history ad nauseum. But still, to Juliet's point, I think a big part of the thesis was basically liberal democracies have triumphed and has been proven to be the stable way forward. And Juliet makes the point that maybe China is a big counter example here. And to her point about COVID, it does seem to me, they're trying not simply to flex their muscles, say, as Russia did, but to also ha- use a kind of soft power on the vaccine front, give away vaccines and the like. So do you see that kind of model for world domination is the wrong word, really, but for persuasion or influence?
2: Well, it's an alternative governing model. I've said that for quite a few years, that I think of all the alternatives, the only one that's remotely serious is the one that China has, because it's technologically advanced, it's produced stability, and it's produced a high level of prosperity. Well, there's a couple of question marks about that. The first is, is it exportable? Clearly, lots of countries can be authoritarian, but can they be as successfully authoritarian promoting the kind of technological development that China has succeeded in doing. And that's not clear. The other thing is whether that model itself is is that stable, because the Chinese have kept growth going through lots of borrowing. If you look at their real estate market and the stuff that's blowing up right now as we speak, it's not clear that they're going to be able to evade the basic laws of economics forever. And they've wasted a huge amount of money Investing 50% of GDP year in and year out, apartment blocks that then have to be blown up because there's nobody to live in them. So I think that they look pretty strong right now. By the way, I'm much less relaxed about Taiwan than Professor Kaim. I actually think that that's extremely dangerous. But I do think that in the long run, there could be some real problems with their model that will seem very evident in the, another decade or so.
1: Professor McFall recognizing it's not your area but can you sort of break the tie here it was considered <laughs> a big deal that it was announced that we had troops in Taiwan I I I'm, I'm sure that couldn't have been a grave surprise to Beijing but nevertheless it did seem like the combatants at least over Taiwan were squaring off do you see it as just a sort of counterfeit skirmish as maybe Professor Kayyem does, or really the advent of a bona fide military engagement?
0: You know, we just had uh, Bill Burns here at Stanford last week. Uh, He's the current director of the CIA. And we got into probabilities about the future. And I went through the list of uh, things that the CIA missed when I was in the U.S. government. We missed the Green Revolution in Iran in 2009. We missed the Arab Spring. We missed mobilization against Russia and Putin's regime in 2011. We missed the Maidan revolution in ukraine and bill rightly pointed out well professors of political science are pretty bad at predicting the future too
1: so yeah <laughs> uh,
0: i i i want to just make sure uh, that that i am not a predictor of the future yeah you know the cia they have to do low medium or high right not i i was always, always marveled at that why do we just have three options here and not 100 but i want to just say i don't know yeah, I don't trust anybody that throws those numbers around either. What I do know, and I'm not an expert, although I'm I'm writing about this these days, trying to learn more. I would say a couple of things. One is Xi Jinping's obsessed with Taiwan, and he's obsessed with his legacy in as a great leader of China, and that is a reason to be concerned. Number two, they are working on various scenarios that are are much more sophisticated, I would say, than the the kind of Normandy model that I think animates the way that most people that don't follow this closely and and Normandy seems really hard but there is a lot of ways that this different scenarios as it could play out that would be very bad in terms of conflict over Taiwan and ultimately coercive takeover of Taiwan that could be short of a conventional war and number three therefore I would say rather than the probabilities we the Biden administration and we those that care about avoiding conflict Need to spend a much more time on what my former colleague here at Stanford, Alexander George, used to call crisis management and crisis prevention, so that we are maybe strategic ambiguity we keep publicly, but I think we want Beijing to know about the secondary and tertiary consequences of a military action that has to do with not necessarily Taiwan, but other places of the economy and disrupting energy. I'm kind of struck by the absence of diplomacy right now between Beijing and Washington. There's not a lot of high-level contacts going on right now, and you don't have to agree with your interlocutor to meet with them. Believe me, I know Is the former U.S. ambassador to Russia. The greatest sin of diplomacy is to have a conflict, let alone a war, That's based on misperceptions and misinformation. And that's what worries me about this moment uh, vis-a-vis Taiwan. I listen to the Chinese, and I think they are underestimating our capabilities of responding. And I listen to our side, and I I worry sometimes that we're exaggerating uh, commitments to go to war over Taiwan that I don't know if we have. I would like to make sure that we're doing everything we can to keep the status quo and by the way non events are really important events in history the non event of what the chinese call unification with taiwan is a great achievement of diplomacy over the last several decades i think we need to reinvest in in keeping that non event from occurring
3: i was surprised to learn that he has not left the country since covid began that i had not heard that and that's why he didn't travel this week and are you getting the sense on that lack of diplomacy that that's actually also Happening at lower levels, that there's not that kind of outreach. I mean, it's one thing for the two of them to meet for Biden and Xi, but I just was curious if that assessment was also at other levels.
0: I think relative to because we invoked the Cold War before. The Cold War is this, and containment is this very elastic term that describes everything from Nixon's détente to Reagan's rollback. But unless it's happening secretly, I, I don't think it is. There has not been that much contact. We don't have an ambassador there. And I think we want to understand their motivations better, and I want them to understand our motivations better, and there's no substitute for face-to-face diplomacy.
1: These are all really, really great points. And on the prediction point, I just want to do a nod to our colleague, Philip Tetlock, and all the learning that's been done about the folly of certain predictions and the need, I think, in the real world for just planning for kind of everything. But let's do a closeout question here based on the points that you and Professor Kaim had just made, because there's a summit planned between Xi and Biden at the end of the year. And you're right, at least the administration seems to be setting very low expectations. What's the best case scenario as you see it for the summit? What can we hope for as the very best just sort of Plan non-event, where at least they plan to communicate in the future. It,
0: it will be a bland summit. You know, in the old days when we had summits, when I worked in the government, we tried to produce deliverables and outcomes, and we used summits to put pressure on both governments to do that. I, I don't see that happening now. And therefore, I think just a return to dialogue, but I don't think anybody should expect any big
1: breakthroughs. All right. It is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine & More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue
4: in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's Spirited Debate, we stir up a discussion around cocktails. Make your own or buy them ready to drink. There's no question that mixing a delicious cocktail is truly an art form. Precise measurements and proportions, creative substitutions, the presentation itself, and even the speed of delivery are all factors that earn great mixologists the reputations they deserve. But for people who may not stock things like triple sec and bitters, a ready-to-drink cocktail that's pre-measured and mixed just might be worth pulling off the shelf. Ready-to-drink cocktails don't necessarily give you the satisfaction of creating a drink from scratch, but they do offer up undeniable convenience, removing the complexity of recipes, the burden of acquiring ingredients, and the time it takes to measure, pour, mix, crush, stir, and, of course, repeat. Plus, you still have the ability to customize your drink, adding a splash of this or that, here or there, to your liking. So whether you're into customization or convenience, ready-to-drink cocktails give you a little bit of both. Now, who says you can't have your cocktail and drink it too? So what's better, customization or convenience? Probably depends on the situation. It can be fun crafting your own cocktail, but when time is short, ready-to-drink cocktail sure does hit the spot. Either way, you can grab all the ingredients you need for a great craft cocktail or get your ready-to-go favorite at Total Wine & More. And remember,
0: always think interesting, drink interesting.
1: Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. So let's turn to your subject of great expertise, maybe everyone's, but certainly Professor McFaldy. Let's talk about Russia now. So speaking of summits, there was this big summer summit with Biden and Putin, which supposedly achieved what? Some kind of vague assurances? from Putin to help rein in the hacking and cyber warfare. A little footnote, by the way, we didn't talk about it with China, but that's a very important and growing part of their whole relationship with us. They seem to be diving in with both feet. All right. So, Professor McFall, let me start with you. I reread your opinion pieces in advance of that summit, and I was really struck by your prescience, you said he shouldn't try, Biden that is, to improve relations with Russia. They should just define concrete security, economic and value related goals to achieve. And so they did go forward, but it seems like it's a kind of C minus at best, right? Notwithstanding the Putin assurances, there doesn't really seem to have been any bona fide good faith follow through from russia is that fair
0: well it depends on the issue area so on the cyber piece that you alluded to it's and i always hesitate to talk about things that i have to read about (laughs) that are leaked uh, classified to reporters because i don't know if what they're being leaked to is true and i know there's disinformation from the us government from time to time to mislead our reporters but To the extent that I understand what's going on there, I don't see any change in behavior from the Russians on that front. And we're not making it costly for them, so why would they change? But if we pivot to the nuclear side and arms control, at least they issued a one-page document. I think it had three paragraphs that said, we're going to engage on trying to figure out what comes after the New START Treaty. Remember, Trump was threatening to not roll over that treaty Biden came in and he agreed with Putin early on to extend it for five more years. And I think that was smart. I agree with that. But five years, it's now four years, that's going to blow by very quickly. And the next round is going to be extremely difficult given the new weapons in particular that Mr. Putin has been developing over the last 15 years. So at least that process has started. They got their teams in place and that's better than nothing. But I think the real policy challenge for Biden is not, the interaction with Putin, it's what they do to contain the belligerent behavior of Putin and to support small D Democrats that live in Putin's neighborhood. That's the piece that I think is missing. And and front and center to me, that's Ukraine, but it's also Georgia, it's Moldova. And aspirationally, the Biden administration, I think, has said all the right things. But in terms of an implementation of a plan of a policy, those pieces are still pretty ambiguous, I would say, so far.
3: I think what's interesting, you're seeing on the U.S. side, people know, 60 to 70 percent of our critical infrastructure is owned by the private sector. The target of these ransomware attacks tends to be private sector. So I think one of the interesting things that I've seen in the last year on the defense side is a recognition that Russia has not been contained. And so you're starting to see two things happen on the ransomware side. One is the market responding to make it hurt a little bit more on these companies that do appear to be somewhat vulnerable. And not taking their cyber defenses seriously. So whether it's insurance, liability or whatever else, that is key. So it's really interesting to see, it's like an insurance policy, the harm is still gonna be there, so you better get your act together because we won't cover negligence at this stage on the part of our critical infrastructure. On the second piece that you've seen on the response side is a very strong emphasis now coming out of the Homeland Security apparatus on response and recovery capabilities. Colonial pipeline. I think when we write the history of this time, we sort of passed by it its significance, a low-grade attack putting 50% of our pipeline capacity on the East Coast at risk for a company that no one had never ever heard of before. And their only solution is to turn it off. How could that be called a sophisticated defense? That's your only solution? Well, cause yes, yeah, because they were pumping blind. They were terrified that they were going to increase the pressure. So so you're starting to see a lot more sophistication, which makes me happy on the sort of acceptance that this will be a long-term threat, not like climate change, right? And so you better get your response and recovery capabilities more sophisticated. And, And it took colonial, I think, to see the private sector, I'm not saying it's there yet, but to see there be a Greater emphasis on those pieces, response and recovery, than on just prevention, because prevention, as we're seeing, is you can't rely on it. This is going to be a continuing threat.
1: It's true. And there's an analogy to terrorism over the last 20 years. It just does not seem possible that there's a way to stop. So you have to contain, and it's very much a one step forward, two step back, because there are people who are quickly developing. Professor Fukuyama, I, I, I want to double back to something that Professor McFall said and ask if you had an opinion. It is true, it seems to me, that the government is not making a very big deal about Putin's failure to follow through with the concrete things they at least talked about in June. And indeed, the latest word from him and the administration is it's time to de-escalate. What's the sort of strategic sense of actually disengaging and not holding their feet to the fire for the failure to follow through on the assurances they made?
2: No, I certainly don't think it's a brilliant strategy. On
1: the U.S. part, yeah.
2: Yeah, I think it's a failure. I agree with Mike that actually there's a lot that they've done in that region that's been very disappointing. They've not strongly supported Ukraine. They didn't really have a strong summit meeting between Zelensky and Biden when he was here. It's almost as if Biden doesn't want people to remember Hunter Biden and Ukraine, and therefore he's kind of staying away from it. Failing to try to do more to block Nord Stream 2, I think, was a big mistake. And I frankly don't understand it. I mean, if they're saving their ammunition for something bigger, I don't know what that's going to be. I really wish they'd taken a tougher line on all this.
1: Does it have something to do with the hyper intense focus on passing these spending bills at home and not wanting to? Rock any boat whatsoever.
2: I don't see how standing up for Ukrainian democracy is going to alienate anybody. If anything, that's something that the the Republicans would like. And I really don't think that apart from Donald Trump himself, anyone would criticize a higher level of support for Ukraine. I mean, they are monomaniacally focused on this game of chicken they're playing over the reconciliation bill, but that's why you got a separate State Department and NSC is so you can walk and chew gum at the same time and They don't seem to be doing that.
1: So stability on that front is, I think, a very big part of the effectiveness of our agendas with both Russia and China. That relationship took a terrible beating under Trump. And I think the sense when Biden came in is it wasn't going necessarily to be a quick honeymoon, that Biden maybe had to prove anew our trustworthiness as allies. So let me just ask, how do things stand with us and our NATO allies? And does Biden still have a lot of repair work to do?
2: Well, Biden's doing some repair work as we speak, right? He's meeting with Macron and apparently has characterized the submarine deal with Australia and Britain as badly done, which I suppose goes for an apology.
1: Yeah, he's falling on his sword a little bit, yeah.
2: Yeah, but I think that's just a sign of how clumsy that whole episode was in alienating what's a pretty important ally. And I think that overall... europeans have realized that there's a lot of continuity between trump and biden i mean on the trade front the protectionism really hasn't changed they haven't taken tariffs off of a lot of the goods that trump started so i would say that a lot of the u.s allies are pretty disappointed at this point
0: well tad a couple of things i mean first of all don't forget how bad things were in the previous administration and the sigh of relief in europe when President Biden was elected and then inaugurated. You know, It took a while to get there, as we know. And if you look at public opinion in all the countries of Europe and actually around the world, you see a palpable change just from that one event. That's the first thing I would say. Second, it's also the case that I don't think we've had a more experienced president on Europe, maybe George H.W. Bush, but Biden has a deep, deep decades of experience in the region. I used to travel with him when he was vice president in Europe, places in like Ukraine and Moldova and Georgia as well. And that helps that he knows these places, he understands the issues, and, and he has a team that does that too. But the third piece is, yeah, so you get the bump from just being the new guy, and now that's worn off. They've made mistakes, as Frank just talked about. But I think there's a bigger thing that they haven't got their momentum yet and it's related to both China and Russia in this conversation which is the president in his State of the Union and many other times he has framed analytically the challenge of the 21st century is a battle between autocrats and Democrats or liberals and illiberals might be a term I would use right he has said rhetorically that this is true and by the way I think he's right about that analytically I think the challenge is China and Russia to the liberal international order is real. And by the way, there's a division of labor. I think we underestimate how much Putin plays in this. Putin's focused on the illiberals in the developed world and making relations and building ties with illiberal movements and the illiberal leaders in places like Hungary and Italy and and our own country. And, And we underestimate that. I think we kind of blow it off. It's real. China, I think, as an alternative model that nobody in France is getting excited about. Nobody's saying in France, we want to be more like the Chinese, but they are in the developing world. And the combination, I think, is real and a real challenge. And I just don't get the sense yet that the Biden administration has figured out what the normative response to that is what the ideological response to that and I use that word hesitatingly but I think you need to inspire people not just to play this kind of great power competition game it's not just about power it's about ideas and they just haven't yet found their voice I think on that front and I hope they do but it's most certainly not there in Europe and I suspect it's not there in a lot of other parts of the world as well.
3: well let's not forget Afghanistan, too. It's, it's unclear whether that's going to have long-term impact for our allies, but that was definitely not a happy moment and continues to not be a happy moment for people who we should try to get out. So that's just a, another wrinkle. I, In response to both of you, I, I do sometimes think the Biden White House needs like a Czar of good news. Maybe I live in the Twitter world too much or whatever, but I actually think that they need to strut a little bit more to this point that we're the bomb, so to speak, uh, not literally. And if you look at some of these metrics, they're actually quite promising. I mean, I sit here shocked how. Unhappy people seem to be of the fact that we are essentially on our way out of a pandemic. Like, I'm like, why isn't everyone partying like me? Like, I mean, I'm not doing anything stupid, but today the FDA has now approved the five to 12 year olds. This is the exit strategy. And I just feel like, I don't know, if I were the White House, I would be just completely. I mean, they have to wait for the CDC, but this is exactly it. All the metrics are down. So this is your, we actually know how to do big things in this country. We actually can still do big things. The other is, of course, a reconciliation, which I'm not smart enough to get into all the details, but you would think that we basically are taking money away from people, given how this has played out. There's a statistic I just saw that's worth people hearing because it's so jaw-dropping in its fabulousness for people who care about climate change. Even though, the entire package has been cut in half, right? Just be based on what these two senators, Manchin and cinema want. The climate change budget started at $600 billion and remains at $555 billion. And so you want to talk about a commitment to something that most people view as probably one of the greatest existential threats. That money is in there. He doesn't get all the policies he wants. I feel like- These are the kinds of things that our allies who are looking to us to try to cut emissions and to lead the way in terms of climate change really aren't, I don't know what it is, and I don't know if it's just the nature of our politics now, you know, the czar of good news, because there actually are signs that we are coming back as a nation and as a global model for issues that the world does care about.
2: The media has not been good at covering. They've only focused on the headline, aggregate number. Yeah. Nobody has any idea what's in the bill. I think if they did have a better idea what was in it, they would like it better.
3: That is absolutely true. And you don't sell something by what's not in it, but by what's in it. And when I saw these numbers for climate, I was like... Those are real numbers. This is not $5 million. Half a trillion dollars for climate change mitigation and response capabilities is a fabulous number and likely might get us very close to places where we need to be in the next five to 10 years.
1: I just wanted to double back and reinforce one thing Professor McFall said. It's my perception that it's not simply Biden who's very conversant in Europe and sophisticated and ready to lead. They have a really strong team there. A lot of the voices have not been so much deployed, including on these very issues that Professor Puglielm just talked about. I mean, it's partly self-inflicted that all the discussion has been the, the bottom line price tag. I think they're moving away from that now. But they have people there who've been training for 30 years for the jobs they have in marked contrast to, say, the, the Trump administration. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. I want to do something a little different this week, providing you an excerpt of an interview I did a few days ago with the great Barney Frank, former congressman from Massachusetts, and to me and others, a much-missed voice, on the national scene during these tumultuous several years. So I spoke with him about a range of topics, and here you'll hear him explain why he thinks that COVID has been a real political game-changer.
5: Prior to, to recent times, I think some of the people on the left, dissident wing of the Democratic Party, I agreed with much of what they wanted to do substantively. But they did not appreciate how angry people were at government. They, they overestimated. I, my, my summary was that when you looked at programs to help, the whole was smaller than the sum of the parts. People would be for this Medicare expansion or that unemployment uh, increase. But when you put them together, they were angry. And, and that, to, well, Medicare for all would be an example. Increasing Medicare benefits, lowering the age, very popular. Abolishing private insurance and going to a total public system, very unpopular. And I think the left missed that. Then, and I think the, the the mainstream of the Democratic Party missed the need to move in that direction. And then COVID has brought us together. COVID has created a much stronger public opinion for these changes. Even at the low level of of the program, look, Underbide the Democrats have already done three one point nine billion on on the Democrats alone. everybody agrees on the second one point nine billion on infrastructure that's three point eight a trillion I'm saying billion I'm in the old old moment exactly, yeah so you're at one 3.
1: trillion 8, dollars
5: <laughs> three point eight trillion so if you then add in the next phase one point five trillion, I believe it'll be a little bit more than that. You're talking about $5.3 trillion within the first year of the Biden administration on domestic programs. Obama was able to get $800 billion, and his $800 billion was attacked by the right and much of the rest of the country for being too big. So at the worst case, and I'm sure they're going to get this done, the Biden administration and a Democratic Congress that has the barest majorities possible is going to adopt a domestic spending increase. That's what uh, six times or seven times Obama's amount, and it will be popular. So that's why I think COVID. Is, it, COVID has, I believe, people see two things about COVID. First, well, three. First of all, COVID government was essential in combating COVID. Donald Trump said, hey, I helped bring about the uh, vaccine. Secondly, government has stopped a recession. Government has had a major macroeconomic effect. And third, government has helped individuals. We were plagued for years with the Ronald Reagan philosophy. Government is not the answer to the problem. Government is the problem. That's, of course, a literal quote from Ronald Reagan. Bill Clinton was so frustrated by that or, or, or believing that it was, you couldn't fight it. He announces the era of big government is over. But you know what's over? The era in which a Democrats says the era of big government is over. That's over. Big government's back. 5.7 or 8 yeah, yeah. trillion is Biden's amount. And that's all because of COVID.
1: So that's just a couple minutes of our interview. To hear the whole thing, you can go to patreon.com slash talkingfeds. As we do periodically with Patreon features that we think are pretty important, we are making this interview available to everybody for a couple weeks. But if you do go to listen to the Frank interview, take a look at the other features that are there for supporters and you can decide if perhaps you'd like to be a supporter as well.
6: Equitable access to high quality healthcare is a right for everyone. It's not a privilege for some. Our Health California is a grassroots advocacy community fighting for statewide and federal health policies that advance affordable care for everyone. With more than 1 million healthcare supporters, Our Health California educates patients, health enthusiasts, and voters about health and mental health care, then connects supporters with lawmakers to advocate for change. Since 2019, Our Health California advocates have sent more than 46,000 messages to their lawmakers and taken nearly 168,000 advocacy actions. Visit ourhealthcalifornia.org to join and make your voice heard. It's free. Again. That's ourhealthcalifornia.org.
1: So I very much wanted to talk about climate change and actually situate it in the overall national security, international relations set of issues. I'll just make the obvious point to what you were saying before the sidebar, Professor Kaim that Biden's hand for leading will be much reinforced if and when the 550, which is not chump change and when it actually passes. And for someone who's tried to play it fairly cool and have people come to him, he really did quite the last minute fire alarm effort to get this to pass before he left for Europe and was clearly disappointed it didn't happen. So we do have the UN Climate Change Conference starting and this gap report saying that everybody, hopefully we can distinguish ourselves there, but the so-called group of 20 are not coming close to the pledges they made in 2015. What should we expect to come out of the climate conference? And is there kind of a breakthrough strategy even to be entertained rather than this each nation state having a certain portion and coming nowhere close to it? Professor Fukuyama, I know you've written a fair bit about this in and offered a fairly discouraging analysis of the way we're going forward. Let me start with the conference and whether that's going to be just so much pomp and circumstance.
2: Well, I do think that overall people have put way too much emphasis and political capital into these international conferences. And the real weaknesses are in the national systems that are unable to follow up on the pledges that are made at the conferences. And so The credibility of the United States, whatever Biden says in Glasgow, can be completely undermined if the Congress doesn't follow through and actually pass the right legislation. And even in an authoritarian country like china i mean you look at the pledges that she has made regarding getting rid of coal in bri projects and and so forth they're now reopening coal mines because of the electricity shortages that have been hitting a lot of chinese cities and so even this authoritarian country they can't just snap their fingers and implement an international pledge And so I actually think that a lot of the focus ought to be on the politics within these countries that allows them to actually reconcile these really powerful, conflicting economic stakeholders, a lot of whom are going to be injured by, you know, this rapid transition and seeing how to help those national processes take place. And the single most important country is China. You know, China is the largest carbon emitter right now. And if you look 20, 30 years in the future, Half of all emissions are going to be coming from that country unless they can get that under control. And so that's really where the action is going to be. And I just think all the pledges made at an international summit are pretty small change compared to those sorts of factors.
1: Especially when the president doesn't even show up, right? Yeah. I agree with Frank. I I think
0: individual pledges, and I can think of other things where that happens, is not a great way to move forward. I also think what Frank just said underscores the the part of the conversation we had earlier, that on the issues of climate change, we have to work with the Chinese. We have to engage. Reminds me of nuclear weapons during the Cold War. You can agree on things that we both have interest in in one sphere and then disagree in the other. And We've got to get into better habits, I would say, with the Chinese of that compartmentalization. It took a while in the Cold War, by the way. We're, we're not there yet. But the third thing that's um, struck by, what did you call it? The czar for good news? Uh, Juliet, I thought that was a great phrase. Yeah.
3: I don't know. Maybe I, maybe my medication is right these days, but I see some very good metrics as well as the bad ones.
0: I would relate the two of them, right? Because you just invoked Ron Plane. That's great. I think he's really great on TV. I, I used to work with him. I think he's a great communicator. But he's one guy. And by the way, I also think this is the this is the storm before the calm. Nothing is better about good news than actually having good news. And they're going to sign these two bills, and it's going to be. a a big change and that's all coming so be ready we're all just waiting and the media doesn't have anything else to talk about so they just bring on members of congress that laments uh, this that and the other it's going to change once they sign having said that however it reminds me of this climate conversation i don't think national governments or transnational movements are doing enough to talk about the consequences of inaction One of my colleagues here at Stanford, a brilliant guy by the name, his name is Marshall Burke, you should have him on, Harry, to talk about these issues, works on climate change. And he always says, when he's speaking about it, we always talk about what we're going to spend or not to reduce emissions. We never talk about the cost of inaction and adding that up and the trillions and the horrors and the millions of people that die of inaction, right? And that's harder, the, the counterfactuals, harder for people to imagine, But I'm constantly struck by, you know, Frank and I here at Stanford, and I'm sure at other universities around the country, the science is pretty clear. It's not like we need more scientific studies about what's going on, but we need social movements. I would say transnational movements to communicate that science, to make it matter to my mom in Montana or to people living in rural areas in China. And that communication piece, Is missing. And the transnational movement to save the planet, when I think about other transnational movements for decolonization or democracy or even communism back in the day, just seems a little more disorganized to me. And I don't have an explanation for that, but it's striking to me that it is not a movement that scares politicians in democracies or is working inside other countries in a global way.
3: I agree. I mean, part of that is obviously there's disinformation campaigns to undermine that aggression. But I often say this as well, at the risk of sounding like I'm supporting the anti-Fauci movement. But I think that there are parallels with with what's happening with COVID. I, I think we're ready to pivot away from, in some ways, the science and return to the community mobilization, the economic, the societal changes that are going to represent a post-COVID recovery. So I would welcome new faces on the COVID side as well. That would be completely consistent with how most disaster management works, that you have the response people and then you shift to recovery, New Orleans, Sandy, BP oil spill. And I think that then you get someone who's actually owning The good news story, which is our economy is getting stronger. Our kids are back in school. Women are getting back to work. We're moving around. We're seeing James Bond movies. This is all fantastic. And stop muting all this good news.
1: All right. We are out of time, but we have one minute left, which is just our final feature of Five Words or Fewer, where we take a question from a listener and each of us has to answer in Five Words or Fewer. Juliet knows this. (laughs) So here's the question. G20 this year is taking place on Halloween in a world in which the global leaders were encouraged to dress in costume. What costume should Biden wear to the summit? Five words or fewer, please. Well, I would say Superman.
3: (laughs) Yes.
0: How about a Superman costume in green, in green, to emphasize his point about climate change? A
1: 2024 ballot. You guys forget the horrifying part of Halloween. I'm going with Donald Trump or Steve Bannon. <laughs> we are out of time. Thank you very much to our entire professoriate this week, Professor Juliet Kayyem, Professor Francis Fukuyama, and Professor Michael McFaul. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts, and please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, at TalkingFedsPod, to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com whether for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal and political systems for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds We'll keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, Associate producer, Olivia Henrikson, Assistant producer, Matt Mcgardo. Adam Messias is our sound engineer. David Lieberman and Rosie Don Griffin are our contributing writers. Production assistants by Ray Cohn-Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. Our consulting producers are Andrea Carla Michaels and Dustin Nels. Thanks very much to Barney Frank for supplying today's sidebar and for the longer interview, which you can hear at patreon.com slash TalkingFeds. Our gratitude goes out, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.